Welcome to the Public Morality. One need not be a political scientist, philosopher, or historian to accurately surmise the resiliency of American democracy is threatened. From the way we receive our information, to a distrust of our democratic institutions, to a Machiavellian ends justifying the means rationale that subjectively defines our institutional guardrails as optional. Is American democracy destined toward that dark place articulated by the poet William Butler Yeats? Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Joining me to continue our probe into American democracy, we welcome back Brookings Institution scholar, Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan Rausch, welcome back to the Public Morality. Great to have you, sir. It's always nice to be with you, Byron. We recently had uh, Nicole Bibbins, uh, Sadaka of the Freedom House, uh, on the broadcast. And I want to begin with the same question that I initially posed to her. It has become customary during the State of the Union address for the president, regardless of party, to say the State of the Union is strong. When you examine the current state of American democracy, does that perfunctory statement ring hollow to you? Well, ask me again on January 20th, 2025. Yeah, it rings a bit hollow. Um, I'm 63 years old, and I think American democracy is in worse shape now than it has been since the early 60s when large swaths of Americans were not able to vote. Um, It's not as bad as that, but it's a time of a lot of polarization in the country, a lot of dysfunction in um, our institutions, especially Congress, and a dangerously illiberal, I think properly termed semi-fascist tendency in one of our two major parties. I'm unaware of any democracy index uh, from The Economist, the Freedom House does one, that places American democracy in a healthy context, uh, which really belies how we see ourselves. Um, If there is this gap between how we see ourselves and how others see us, how concerning is that as we go forward? Well, I wonder how big that gap is. I think a lot of Americans are very concerned about the state of our liberal democracy. So I'm I'm actually not sure that it's like Americans think everything's hunky-dory and the rest of the world thinks it's not. I think there's actually, you know, pretty broad recognition that that we're not in a good place right now. Now the reasons for that will will differ. Someone in the MAGA movement will ascribe that to a stolen election in 2020. And someone outside the MAGA movement, like me, is more likely to say it has more to do with um, problems of extremism on the other side. But there's, I think there's pretty wide feeling that things are not working all that well right now. Do, would you disagree with that? Yeah, no. So, so I guess then I'll, I'll just come back to say, is it, is it um, if, we, I, if we could agree that there's this widespread feeling um, that it's not working, um, there seems to be, we're, no one has a solution 
um, that that garners a large swath of the population that that agrees on what's the problem. So one side in a two-party system, what seems to me, one side of the political aisle says it's those guys, and then those guys say no, it's those guys. So we it's sort of like a circular uh, conundrum. Well, again, maybe so. I think one of the good things that's happened over the last five or six years, mostly bad things have happened, but but there's been a response to that. There's been a much broader recognition than there was in 2015 when Barack Obama was still president, that we have a problem, that we had taken our democratic institutions and norms for granted for much too long, that we had failed at things like civics education, that polarization was getting out of hand, that we did not know how to handle social media, um, and that some important reforms are needed in the political process. And we're seeing those reforms starting to happen. Uh, It's always a gradual process, but a number of states have now adopted versions of, for example, final five ranked choice voting. Um, I'm not among those who think that's a panacea or even close, but we're going to find out if it works. And it's part of a movement to start to start changing things. So I think, you know, it's it's not like everything's terrible and no one knows it. There's a lot of work going on. There's also a lot of grassroots work going on. I'm a fan and evangelist and former board member of Braver Angels, which is a national grassroots depolarizing movement. It's now in 50 states, pretty much all volunteer. It's not about finding common ground. It's about relearning how to talk to each other, how to depolarize, how to humanize the other side. And it's making really good headway. It's just catching on. So, you know, it's not like we're without resources. Yeah, no, no, you touched on the polarization. Um, and, and that enables, uh, in my view, anti democratic behaviors. There's a rise in political violence. I don't think we can ignore that. Um, there's a large distrust of government institutions. Um, with that daunting resume, um, uh, with those feelings so pretty much uh, entrenched with a lot of people, you still believe that um, that trajectory can be altered? Well, I'm unwilling to say it can't. America's been through some pretty bad scrapes in the past, and you you know that as well as I do. I can you know think of a a bit of a dust up in 1861, just for example. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> and and we do have to remember how dire things were in in the 50s uh, when pretty much the entire southern region of the United States was not a democracy at all. Um, Many, many citizens could not vote. They were terrorized if they tried. Uh, That was done with the complicity of of their governments. Um, So, you know, I I am not Pollyanna. I am am with you, Byron, in worrying about the state of our democracy right now. Uh, I've never seen it as fragile um, since the early 60s. Um, but but I also don't want to sit here and say that nothing is being done about it and nothing can be done about it. Mm-hmm. No, you 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 make an excellent point. Uh, is is your recaption of history uh, in the the mid fifties, early sixties, sixties? I mean, we could argue that um, it wasn't until the nineteen sixty five Voting Rights Act where we could say that we were a full. Uh, democracy. And in less than 50 years later, 
um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was gutted so that um, you had another state legislature then started monkeying around with elections under the guise of free or fair elections. So when you look at our 236 year history, we really had less than half a century where we could say that every American was uh, a full had full access to the franchise, and now, now there's pushback on that, and and those seem to be these subtle things that seem to be complicit, depending on your the region of the country that you live in. Your thoughts on that, sir? Well, on the Voting Rights Act specifically, or or a general state of things. Well, well, well just I mean, just both? Yeah, some of both. Since the Voting Rights Act has been gutted, I mean. People in, let's say, in those states where there are rollbacks and trying to make voting more challenging for people, in my view, um, that seems to be okay uh, with certain people, that they don't see that inconsistent with democracy, depending on the region that you live. And there's just, to me, there just seems to be, there, there, there's some fundamental benchmarks that we all should agree on. And, and everyone having access to the franchise, in my view, is one of them. Well, so I wouldn't agree that voting rights have been gutted. Um, they, the Voting Rights Act, so as I understand it, I'm, I'm no expert, but what the Supreme Court did a few years ago was knock out a provision of the Voting Rights Act for pre-approval, which mm-hmm. in certain states required those states to go get approval from the Justice Department before changing the district lines. And that was because those states had a a bad track record of disenfranchising African-American voters. So that element was knocked out. And then Republicans in some of these states started going to town with redistricting. But then there's a second question, which is they still can't violate, cannot violate the Voting Rights Act when they come out the other end. They don't have to face pre-approval, but they still have to face post-approval. And if they get sued because they're disenfranchising black voters, then uh, they can be ordered to change those those redistricting, and that's that's exactly what's happened. Uh, in the Supreme Court, just in the in the most recent term, said it was not backing away from enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Now, there's been a challenge to that from where else? Alabama, which has had multiple federal court decisions ordering it to straighten out its redistricting practice, and has refused to do so. But but Alabama is going to lose that battle. So. The reason I go through all that is agree or disagree about pre-approval in the Voting Rights Act. We are not in any place like where we were when I was born in 1960. Uh, we are not seeing anything like mass disenfranchisement of voters, and and we're not likely to. Uh, the courts are not going to allow it, and I think ultimately Congress won't allow it. I think the, the bigger problems to democracy lie elsewhere. And that's the undermining of institutions and norms, like the peaceful transfer of power, and like uh, the rule of law through the courts and the Justice Department, and and all of those other areas where we're seeing the MAGA movement uh, move in, in pretty bold ways to undermine the rule of law. That's that's where I would look first. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, You know, we, we got to watch voting rights. We always will. We, we can never fall asleep at that guardhouse. Yeah. Uh, but I no, just don't think that's a big problem right now. It's, it's, I'd look elsewhere. No, your, your, your points are well taken. Um, what to, it, it, we're going down that, uh, the thread of the democracy. Is 
democracy in general, when you look at the history of it, is it something that has a short life and authoritarian rule in some form reflects sort of the organic default position of the people? How do you see that? So say that again. So the... I mean, is, is, is all, I mean, is, is democracy inevitably something that has a shelf life? And when you really it's, think oh, about yeah. what a what a great question. Well, that, you know, that question goes back to Plato. Yeah. In the Republic, <laughs> you know, the, the founding work of political philosophy basically says democracy is inherently unstable. And it turned out to be in ancient Greece. That was the problem that James Madison was so concerned with when he and the others designed the American Republic, they were well aware that democracy throughout the world had, had failed again and again because it, it, it was unstable. It would You'd have these factions develop and they would manage to take over and organize uh, mobs and overthrow the government. And that's what they had to deal with. So um, I think the the best evidence on this, it's it's been studied to death, is that, yeah, democracies are always prone to problems with instability of the kind we're seeing in the United States. We've seen it in Poland, Israel, uh, Turkey, Turkey, <laughs> many other places. You're seeing efforts to undermine the system by powerful factions that use demagogic tactics and then capture government institutions and try to hollow them out. And we got complacent about that. I know I did. I, I guess I I can't speak for you, but but I was brought up to think, you know, our institutions are strong and we've got all these processes and it's going to defend us forever. That turns out not to be true. We are no more immune to problems of demagogues and populism and authoritarianism than any other country. Well, maybe we're a bit more immune because we've been around longer and we got pretty decent institutions. But that said, we just... That's what we've learned, hasn't it? You know, in the last six, seven years, that we got to be much more vigilant about defending democracy. We just can't take it for granted. Well, well you know, to that point, I re I remember, and I'm I'm sure you do too, that even before she retired from the court, um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was really concerned about the levels of civic education in America, and. Over time, when that diminishes, um, you, you know, that, that responsibility, sort of that, what is that that, that uh, Benjamin Rush said? That, you know, that, that the war wasn't the revolution. The revolution was, the, the war was just the first act. And so we have American democracy places a lot of demands on the, on the people. And if you don't have, if you don't understand the rights as well as the responsibilities, then don't you become susceptible to that kind of authoritarian rule that says, I, ha I have the answer to solve your problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that the sidelining of civics education, which was a requirement when I was growing up, and you know, it seemed kind of boring at the time. And a lot of people thought, well, it's more important to teach math and reading. Sidelining civic education has been a, a catastrophic mistake. And it's it's led to a situation where you can have a political candidate, like I'm, I'm going to name one, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's running for president as a Republican. So, so he can get up there and promise that when he's president, 
he's going to, what is it he said? He's going to eliminate 20% of federal jobs or something. And uh-huh. eliminate, something like that. Something like that on day one. Maybe it's maybe it's more than that. And, and then he's going to eliminate a whole bunch of departments. The education department will be gone on the first day. And I may not getting the promises right, but if anything, I'm understating them. And and what he's able to do there is a lot of Americans don't understand that the president's powers are very limited. They don't understand what it takes to pass a bill, that the presidents don't have the authority to just come and eliminate agencies that have been established and authorized by Congress. So what he's basically promising is a kind of quasi-dictatorship. It's against the Constitution. It's against the law. It's not possible to do it, but he can promise that and get a lot of people to cheer it because a lot of them don't seem to know better. They don't seem to understand how the system works. You know, to to, to your point, historically, um, the point you just made, that was why Lincoln pushed for the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery because he knew the president could not end slavery by executive fiat. That, that that that's the whole reason for the 13th amendment so um that's at, that's at, exactly at, right and this was something you know a president like like eisenhower for example took all these boundaries for for granted um you may recall the the uh, building of the federal interstate highway system was called the national defense highway act because Eisenhower wanted to make sure he had authority to do that work, and he claimed that authority under national defense, uh, as did right. Congress. Congress was worried, you know, is it constitutional to build all these highways? So so they did it under the rubric of defense. Today, of course, you've got people saying, well, I'm just going to build a wall. I'm going to change the policy. I'm going to shut out Muslims on the first day. I'm going to completely abolish the education department. Fanciful stuff. Uh- at the risk uh, of, of sounding partisan, uh, we have a two-party system, but in my view, it seems as if one party has been, that being the Republican Party, has been willing to exist outside of the long-established Democratic small-D guardrails. I mean, can I mean, maybe you disagree with that, but if you do agree with that, how long can we coexist in that format? I wish I disagreed about that, Byron. You know, I am maybe as nonpartisan a person as you'll ever meet. I'm center right in my political orientation. I have admired and voted for many Republicans. And so what I'm about to say, I think, is just objectively true and well supported by evidence, and I wish it weren't true. But but we don't just have two different parties in America right now. We have two different kinds of parties. The Democratic Party still looks basically like your classic coalitional political party where you've got a bunch of groups together and they try to develop an agenda in order to govern. The Republican Party is divided, but the dominant faction of that party right now is the MAGA movement, which is not a traditional party movement. It's what political scientists call an anti-system movement. And these are movements that are willing to go outside the bounds of the rule of law and of democratic norms in order to hold power and um, 
they're often authoritarian in tone. They're very populistic in tone. And they are willing to do things that traditional parties in America have not. And first and foremost example of that would be the denial of the 2020 election, the effort by the president and his supporters to mount what, what amounts to a coup against the United States, overthrow the Constitution, and the unwillingness of the Republican Party to to hold him to account, and in fact, to continue that very same denial and quite probably nominate him as its candidate for the presidency. If you had told me 20 or 30 years ago that a major political party would nominate for president someone who had tried to overthrow the government of the United States and end our democracy, I would have said you're out of your mind. Well, I won't even go. I won't even go that far. I'll, I'll take a. I'll take someone who I who I have in in enormous amount of respect for. Suppose twenty years ago, you and I were having coffee somewhere, and I said, "You know, Jonathan, in twenty years there won't be room for Jack Kemp in the Republican Party." What would you say? What would you What would you have said to me? I would have said, "Come on, Byron, what are you smoking?" <laughs> but but then if you'd said to me, not only that, Jonathan, but in 20 years, there won't be room for Ronald Reagan in the Republican oh, Party. You'd have me institutionalized. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would then and there have, have called an ambulance um, mm-hmm. to find out what kind of stroke you were having. <laughs> and both of those things are true. Well, Jack Kemp is forgotten. Um, Which is sad. Ronald Ronald Reagan is not forgotten, but he's repudiated by the MAGA movement, which is also sad. Well, well, you know, when you say Ronald Reagan's forgotten, is he forgotten or is he repudiated? Not forgotten. Just yeah, he's transformed into like a. He's great for an opening line, but yeah, he's a prop. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. At the time of this broadcast, uh, Congress doesn't have a Speaker of the House. Talk about the significance of, of, of the inability to have a Speaker in the context of a war in the Middle East, one in the Ukraine, and a looming debt ceiling that needs to be raised shortly. Well, first thing to say about that, before we get to the consequences, is the causes. And... It goes to what you and I have been talking about for the past 20 minutes, and especially the last three minutes, which is the transformation of the Republican Party into something more like an anti-system movement. And what you see there is a group, a faction in the Republican Party, which is a dominant faction, which is not that interested in governing. They are more interested in scoring points and owning the liberals and getting on TV and posturing um, with a kind of, in some ways, nihilistic bent. Because in their districts, they're not rewarded for governing, you know, passing a law, working on appropriations bills. They're rewarded for being um, for being extreme. And once that begins to take over a party, that party becomes very, very difficult to lead because you've got this faction which really wants to be disruptive. There's a 
there's a political scientist who calls this the need for chaos. It's about 20 to 25% of people in major developed countries have this kind of need for chaos. They just want to burn stuff down. Uh, they're just very angry and very disruptive. They don't believe in institutions and they just they just want to see some damage being done. Okay, so what are the consequences when a party gets so tangled up in that kind of thinking? And the answer is that we've got multiple foreign crises and the House of Representatives is offline. We don't know when we'll get a speaker, maybe by the time folks hear this, but that speaker won't be a powerful speaker because he or she will face the very same forces. A small handful of disruptors will be able to take that person down. Uh, the reason that, that Representative McCarthy got thrown out was because at the end of the day, he was willing to make the necessary deals to prevent the United States from defaulting on the national debt and then to prevent the government from shutting down in the midst of a crisis. Uh, that was unacceptable to the loudest, most dominant faction of his party. And that will be the case for the next speaker too. So yeah, the world is looking. It is seeing the shambolic performance of the House of Representatives. Um, and it's wondering, can we count on America anymore? And, and you know, I guess you and I are wondering the same thing, right? No, I, I, absolutely. Since 1988, the Republican Party has won the popular vote for the presidency once. Were it not for the Electoral College, I mean, Democrats would currently experience a complete domination of presidential elected politics over the past few decades. With that said, uh, according to the Carnegie Endowment, 72% of Republicans, this goes back to your earlier point, 72% of Republicans polled and 26% of uh, independents believe President Biden was not victorious. Explain to the listeners why that type of thinking is a, a, is a threat um, to our democracy. Well, first thing to say is, of course, that it is not true that President Biden was not freely and fairly elected. Uh, 2020 was arguably the most free and fair election that America's ever held. So, ma'am, where to, where to begin the kinds of damage that, that it does? So first of all, you got a major party that thinks we're no longer a democracy, that that the president shouldn't be there, that the election was stolen. Um, and that means you've got this, this entire political party that is enthralled to a group of people um, who take those extremist and unrealistic views. That also means you get deeper polarization because Democrats and a lot of independents look at that and say, my God, we got to keep these Republicans out of power at all costs because they tried to overthrow the government once and they'll do it again if they don't, if they, they're not willing to lose an election. And in the democracy, the first rule is, is you got to be willing um, to acknowledge the results of an election. And so now, so that makes Democrats super scared and, and super polarized. So every election becomes, you know, the life or death of our democracy if both parties won't accept the outcome. So you got all of that going on. And then you got the fact that the public gets very confused. It gets more cynical. Um, and 
and more confused about, well, well, who did win the election? How do we ever know who won the election? If going forward, one party or maybe both parties are always going to say, well, we won, we didn't lose. Unless it's some kind of landslide of this sort, you know, we saw in 1980, which don't happen anymore. Then the public's going to say, well, we don't even know who's properly governing our country anymore. So this is just a dagger in the heart of democracy, undermining elections, being unwilling to accept their outcomes. Um, with that said, where do you place the 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 changing demographics in American uh, democracy and its impact on American democracy, I should say, because we have seen people traditionally othered, uh, like the two people on this con on, on on this con in this conversation, you and I, that are now increasingly mainstream. So, is that does that threaten? Is that a threat to democracy? Just the emergence of a larger changing mainstream. Well, it's, I guess it's kind of what we've been talking about, which is the, the emergence of, on the right, the MAGA movement. Um, President Biden called it semi-fascist, and I think that's an exact, precise um, term for it, because it gets you about halfway toward classic European-style fascism. So, uh, and it's it's very populistic. It's got a lot of support from Republican primary voters. So, yeah, that's... That's kind of the heart of the problem right there. Once you've so we've we've always had in the United States a significant number of people who, for whatever reason, were very resentful, very populist, did not believe in institutions or democracy. The thing is that was spread around between the parties, and those voters were not super active, which meant that they could actually play a positive role. They could just help us prevent the takeover of elites. They could shake up the system every so often when that needed to happen. The problem becomes when that group becomes concentrated in a single party and then rallies behind a political figure who is a demagogue um, and willing to, as he has said, suspend or end the U.S. Constitution, then it's a different ballgame because then they can take over a political party. And that means that puts you right in the cockpit behind the steering wheel of the plane. And that's the story of where we are right now. I think the case I'm making here is just objectively true, and I wish it weren't. Yeah. Well, well, here's my next question. So uh, is a possible cure to change the trajectory, not, 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 um, not, not that the trajectory can be changed overnight, but just moving us, do we need more citizens to become defense? facto Democrats, because we're a two-party system. Now, that doesn't mean Democrats are the paragons of virtue um, or one necessarily support their policies, but when you have a party that simply wants to exist outside of the guardrails or a dominant portion of it, do we just have to hold our nose and say, no, we, that's just a bridge too far? Well, I'm not sure what that would mean in practice. Uh, I think there were all kinds of moments in the past several years when we should have said that's a bridge too far and and did not. I think the leading example of that was the refusal of Republicans in the Senate to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment and disqualify him from running to office. That, that was the founder's remedy for a situation where you have someone 
in government who tries to overthrow that government and stay in office illegitimately is you say, well, you can't do that and you're disqualified from office. There have been multiple occasions when it would have been possible to take these these off ramps and say enough is enough. And they're they're built into our constitutional structure, right? They're what's actually supposed to happen. There's another safeguard in there in the 14th Amendment, which says that people who participate in insurrections or who uh, aid and abet them cannot run for federal office. And, and that will not be enforced either if Donald Trump is on the ballot. So to me, part of the problem here, I don't know that it's ordinary citizens. I mean, ordinary Americans, they're they're very busy with their jobs and their kids and getting up in the morning, getting the kids off to school, uh, getting to work on time. It's it's not their job to safeguard the democratic system. That's that's the job of of the people in office who are who are charged with that. And unfortunately, multiple opportunities have been passed up to start reclaiming the system. But but we'll see. There's a big one going on right now. We have seen the engagement of the rule of law in the form of multiple indictments of President Trump's, multiple convictions of the insurrectionists of January 6th. And that is the constitutional system, the rule of law saying, look, you can go so far, but not further. Uh, so we'll see if if that's going to succeed, if that's going to work. Earlier, you 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 referenced um, the pol the polarization and the, and the distrust, um, the sort of pervasive in American democracy right now. So, do we? And I'll let you define the the parameters of the pronoun "we." Do we, in your view, possess the requisite civic maturity to do what's required if we're going to change this scenario? Well, that's a $64,000 question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, wish I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think the majority of Americans are on board with the fundamentals of, of a liberal democratic republic. And that means not just majority rule, but also minority rights, rule of law, constitutional structure. Um, I don't know that all that many of them understand it all that well. You know, there's lots of polls showing people can't really name who's on the Supreme Court. But I think a majority has has a pretty good sensibility about it. The problem is, what do you do when you've got a very organized and very focused and determined and pretty large minority of people that have abandoned that paradigm and largely taken over an entire political party and maybe the party's caucus on Capitol Hill in the House. Well, then you got a different kind of problem, right? It's not just about we define collectively as almost 350 million Americans. Then you got a problem of figuring out how to reassert some boundaries against these determined factional minorities. And it gets you back to your very first question, which is ever since Plato, um, and certainly in the Federalist Papers, James Madison and Hamilton, they worried about anti-democratic factions that would take over. That was that was their number one worry, actually. They they saw this coming and they they tried to build in safeguards in the structure of the system. 
but they all warned us. Madison, Hamilton, Adams, Washington, Franklin, you name it. They all warned us that that what Madison called uh, paper parchment barriers were not going to defend democracy, that you had to have Republican virtue is what they call it in the citizenry. Today, that would what we would call, I think, basic civic literacy, understanding that there's certain things you've got to respect, like truth and the rule of law and politics. And they all said, if if those things degenerate, the Constitution cannot be saved. And so that's what we're looking at right now. So you tell me, um, how much trouble are we in in, in that respect? Well, you know, you you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, the, the founding generation, and I think one thing that they all agreed on was there may be differences in methodology on how how an issue was pursued, but there was a commonality in the goal. Like we mentioned, well, I'll go back to the past. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan had, had similar goal end goals, and they may have different ways of trying to get to it. Um, and that sort of that's the strength, and I guess the weakness is it not of American democracy, especially when you when everybody doesn't have the same goal. If you have one party wants to govern and one party just wants to burn things down, I know I'm oversimplifying it. The system cannot work. Well, it certainly cannot work the way it was intended. And, and that's what we see. The system in the U.S. Is, is built on the idea that there will be some amount of cooperation between political factions and parties. So in most of my lifetime, you would routinely see bipartisan votes in Congress. Uh, the notion that you would have nothing come to the floor of the House that was not supported by all Republicans and opposed by all Democrats. That's only a slight exaggeration. That's a new idea. And it's it's not really very compatible with with our system, the way it was designed. So so yeah, I mean a bunch of challenges like that. But I, I guess I should say, you know, we're we're kind of going down the path of despair. And there is a case for for gloom. Uh we we talked about that at the outset, but we shouldn't at the same time, lose sight of the many forces in society that are trying to knit us back together at the grassroots. I mentioned Braver Angels, but there's tons of groups like that. At the national level, there's efforts to do political reforms. I think President Biden has tried to govern as much as he could as a president for all Americans. He has not tried to be super divisive. Uh, he has passed some bipartisan legislation and shown that that can still be done. He hasn't been rewarded for it in terms of his approval ratings, um, but but he has tried to show a more normal kind of governing environment. Um, and, and that, I think, is to his credit. So there's like there's forces on both sides of the equation, right? And the question is, what can you and I do to help the side of liberal democracy, the founder's vision, prevail. Uh, you mentioned um, the Federalist Papers a few minutes ago, and, and I'm going to borrow a line from Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist One. Um, you know, we if we're going to have, to use Madison, uh, uh, Hamilton's term, we're going to have good government, 
um, we can't rely on, at least in my view, we can't rely on what we thought good government was in the past. Whatever good government is going forward, it has to be something that factors, in my view, the impact of social media, AI. Um, can this 236-year-old system adapt to these new realities? It's still well, you, good government. You, you really go for the small bore questions, don't you? <laughs> you know, I know who I'm the dealing easy with. Ones. I know the who I'm dealing with. I know who I'm, deal- I know who I'm dealing with. I, I've, I've got to bring my A game for Jonathan Roush. That's just oh, how Oh, come I- on. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's the whole, that's the whole question to me. Uh, there's like this arms race going on. So we've got all these media disruptors. Social media has turned out to be very very disruptive in a bunch of different ways. One is to democracy because it is such a perfect forum for misinformation and disinformation, which spreads faster on social media than truth and is much, much easier and cheaper to produce. And then it looks like the rise of social media has had a bad psychological effect, mental health effect on young people. Jonathan Haidt, the well-known psychologist is bringing out a book on on how disruptive to mental health social media have been. And, and we never faced that before. Um, we faced stuff that was like it in the 19th century with the, um, the newspaper industry, with the founding of the technologies that allowed you to print, you know, 100,000 copies of a newspaper overnight. You, you got the really big newspapers and they raced to the bottom. So media in those days was was super hyper-partisan and polarized and just full of fake news. And we got out of that. And the way we got out of that was toward the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th. Publishers realized that they were, they were uh, toxic, toxifying, is that a word, their own business, driving readers away, making making their media places you know basically sewers of partisanship and and fakery and they began adopting rules of the road the american society of newspaper editors was founded in the 19 uh, teens i think and and put out uh, a set of ethics guidelines with stuff like you know be accurate run corrections we started seeing awards like the pulitzers Uh, we saw professionalization the rise of journalism schools and within a generation, we were in the world of Edward R. Murrow, you know, the the famous, actually maybe the greatest period for American news. Mm-hmm. High level of accuracy, high level of trust. So questions, can we do that again with these new technologies? And um, I don't know the answer. I know a lot of people have good ideas and a lot of people are trying. On the other hand, Elon Musk's arrival at Twitter, uh, now X, is a big step backward. Well, I'm so glad you you, you referenced um, not only Edward R. Murrow, but sort of the, the 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 transformation of the press, because we we sort of um, in the public discourse there's this uh, imaginary period that before the 21st century there was this type of press, and we forget there were Hamiltonian newspapers and Jeffersonian newspapers, and these these. And by 21st century standards, these were rags. And so they were partisan rags. And we we sort of masqueraded that sometime at some point journalism has always been this way. And so now journalism media, 
and this is part of our democracy, has been this catch-all phrase. So it could be the bureau chief in in um, for the New York Times, or it could be someone blogging in their grandmother's basement between um, reruns of Cheers. So all, <laughs> yeah. all of that now is media, and isn't that something else that we have to negotiate if we're going to try to get toward this thing called good government? Yeah, yeah. There's um, social media and digital media kind of open the field wide open, and initially a lot of us, me included, thought, well, that's great. You know, let a thousand flowers bloom. It's gonna going to reduce the the power of kind of you know news cartel of these news giants that that run everything and then it turned out there was a huge downside which is that you could make a lot more money uh being a macedonian teenager and putting fake news out there um and you could make a hundred thousand dollars a week doing that kind of stuff so uh so that's a challenge right now is can we establish these new guardrails um and new New institutions and norms that will begin to challenge channel um, new media in, in more positive directions. The good news is, in the past, Americans have been pretty good at that. It takes a while. The bad news is, it's not easy, and there's no guaranteed success. And it's especially hard with social media because you really don't have anyone in a position who has either the know-how or the technology or even the market position to say, "Okay, here's what the rules are going to be on social media." That's just not going to happen. It's not the nature of the beast. And finally, you just raise a really important point uh, that the nature of democracy is always when it when when it when it has to make changes is always perennially in a reactionary catch up position. Is it? Would that be accurate? Well, I guess it's yeah. It's the nature of of the institutions of that. The frame democracy of, of liberalism, the, the big three are science broadly defined, the knowledge system, markets broadly defined, the, the, the capitalist economy, and liberal democracy itself, the constitution and, and similar institutions in other countries. And yeah, they're, they're institutions. They've been there for a long time. They've got a lot of rules and norms. It takes years for people to, to get acclimated to all those rules and norms. Um, learn how to govern if if you're coming up through through a state legislature and into Congress, learn how to do science, uh, understand finance. And when, when there are disruptions and challenges, it always takes longer for the institutions to adapt than for the new challenges to form. So there's there's always this this lag. And we're in one of those lags right now. Um, and it's a big lag, and you've mentioned a lot of the reasons. One is change in the media, and others the change in the political environment, especially one of our political parties. The third is the adaptation. We haven't talked about this, but um, I think that the biggest single change in politics was the takeover of the nominating process by small groups of radical activists in both parties, especially, but not only the Republicans. So... The people voting on the candidates are a pretty broad swath, but the people selecting the candidates, that is a tiny and non-representative fraction of Americans. Um, so you got that disruption. That really kicked into gear in 2016, and we're still dealing with it right now. Well, well I laugh because historically, you just made the argument for the, I'm, I'm using the uh, 
the stereotype, but you just made the argument for the back room, cigar-filled smoking room where, uh, let's say, 1968, Hubert Humphrey didn't, didn't participate in a single uh, primary, but, but nonetheless got the nomination for the Democratic Party. So you just made an argument for that to come back. <laughs> well, the smoke-filled rooms, as, as my Brookings colleague Bill Galston has said, turns out the only thing wrong with the smoke-filled rooms was the smoke. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it turns out that they nominated good people. They did good jobs of finding candidates who could unify a party because uh, that was their job, right? They get the people in the room and they'd say, okay, so what do you need? What do you need? What kind of person is acceptable? It is not true that they had no public input. They had all kinds of public input. They had more public input than you get through a primary because a primary is just this small group of unrepresentative voters smoke-filled rooms, these, these, these guys are mostly elected officials and they're talking to people throughout the party and throughout the country and getting information all kinds of ways, including until 2016 through primaries. Primaries were one of the ways, but not the only way that, that influenced candidate choice. So yeah, when we got rid of all that, we made ourselves a lot poorer in terms of the ability of the parties to find and vet really good candidates who ultimately the public was happier with than the choices they're getting right now. Uh, but here's the thing, we're not going back to smoke-filled rooms. We couldn't if we wanted to. So the question now, I think maybe the, the most important political reform question is, what do you do about the primary system? It's clearly broken. It is driving politics way to the left and way to the right. Um, it is nominating people who in many cases have no business in office. They just don't know what to do when they get there. I would give you George Santos as one example. Um, so if there's one thing that needs to be fixed, that's what it is. There's some really creative ideas. There's some energy behind that. No one's saying you're going to get the voters out of the process, nothing like that. But can you improve the process so that more people are participating in primaries, more voices are heard? So that the real election is on election day in November and not on primary day and so forth. Well, um, I, I, my recommendation is that we just turn, we just, you and I just get a large grant and we just turn everything over to us and we will draw the lines. We will, we will do, we, we will be our own smoke filled room and we'll just have coffee. I don't know. And we'll just have, we'll just solve everything. Then that'll be that. And we'll, we'll get everything back to normal. Uh, Jonathan Rouse, sir, I can't thank you enough for giving me some of your time. It's always an honor to be in conversation with you, sir. I'm always happy to be with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.